Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast produced by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution, where we have a conversation with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Martin, and I have the pleasure today of introducing our special guest host, the Honorable Bruce Meyerson. He is a full-time arbitrator and mediator with Bruce Meyerson PLLC, and he's a former judge of the Arizona Court of Appeals. This week, Judge Meyerson will be speaking with Tracy Fritch, Senior Counsel at the American Arbitration Association, about her upcoming presentation, How Arbitrators Get in Trouble and What to Do About It. Tracy will be presenting at the ABA's Arbitration Training Institute on March 9th and 10th at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at the Arizona State University in Phoenix, Arizona. You can register for the Training Institute at ambar.org backslash ARB2020. And now I'll turn it over to Bruce and Tracy. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I'm uh, here with Tracy Frisch. I'm here in Phoenix and Tracy is in New York. Tracy is senior counsel with the American Arbitration Association. And she is one of the featured speakers at the upcoming ABA section of Dispute Resolution Conference uh, on Arbitration here in Phoenix on March 9th. So welcome, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to speak at the conference. I'm looking forward to it. Well, we are excited to have you. And you're going to be talking about a a topic that's of great uh, interest to arbitrators. And I'll let you describe that in a minute. But first, just talk briefly about your job and and, and what you do in, in your work that may be relevant to the topic that you're going to talk about. Sure. Um, so I've been a member of the American Arbitration Association's legal department for over 10 years. We're a very small department. We have a general counsel, an associate general counsel, myself and my colleague are senior counsel, and there's a position of the counsel in the paralegal. So there's only five attorneys that handle all of the AAA's legal needs. Um, Say our bread and butter is litigation and subpoenas brought against or directed to the AAA, and I will get into this more in my presentation, but litigation and subpoenas can also be directed at an arbitrator. Um, I also do the trademarks for the AAA, our ad copy, review what our advertising looks like, um, look into rule revisions, policy changes, other various projects, contract review, dealing with internal HR issues, or general in-house uh, functions as well. Well, and, and I, I have to say that I've used your services as an arbitrator because uh, a panel here in Phoenix was, was sued uh, for not very valid reasons, of course, and mm-hmm. you were kind enough to jump right in mm-hmm. and arrange to have local counsel for us in New Mexico. So I know that this yep. is the kind of work that you do. So we appreciated that. Yeah, so the AAA, um, I would say generally we take on the representation of our panel members, but it is a case-by-case basis. Um, and so we do evaluate, you know, depending on the circumstances, you know, whether we're going to take on their defense. But in the case like you referenced, um, it was where we did take on the defense and we do hire local counsel and, um, you know, pay for those costs and fees of counsel to represent um, AAA panel members. And a member of the legal department will be assigned to the case, too, uh, and sort of liaison between the panel member uh, and outside counsel. Well, and, and you kept involved and, and stayed involved, and, and our, our panel very much appreciated mm-hmm. that. Talk about 
now you're the subject of your, your discussion, how arbitrators get in trouble and what to do about it. What, what, is, what does that topic involve? Um, it's going to touch on different subject matters. Uh, it's going to look at disclosures, arbitrator disclosures, and how the AAA analyzes requests for removals. I'll talk about best practices for keeping records and conducting conflict checks because from my experience, um, from what I've seen, it's a lot of times it's not known disclosures that are not made. It's unknown disclosures uh, that the arbitrator is not aware of at the time but perhaps should have been. Um, and there, I think there are some best practices there for you know, how you can um, better be aware uh, and check for conflicts. Um, and then I'll also be touching on arbitral immunity uh, and some possible limitations of that immunity through looking at some of the case law. Well, that sounds great. These topics, I think, are going to be very relevant to arbitrators and, and lawyers uh, as well. So you're obviously associated with an administering agency. Yeah. And, uh, and talk a little bit, if you would, uh, why, from your perspective, it's important that uh, an arbitration agreement incorporate an administering agency and, and what can that agency do that's, that's relevant to the topic of your speech? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's, there's different perspectives. So one is from the party perspective. And I think, you know, for a party coming into arbitration, uh, given the adversarial nature of the arbitration process, it's very helpful to have a neutral administrator involved to assist them with you know, the key aspect of the case, which is selection of the arbitrator. Um, and then also with fees and any issues that come up along the way. So if you think about from a, from a party perspective, Know, how awkward it would be to make a request for removal directly to an arbitrator and then have you know, the arbitrator decide for themselves whether or not they can continue on the case. Uh, you know, I think it's very beneficial to have that third-party neutral administrator you know, making those determinations and keeping the arbitrator um, out of it. Um, and then I think that works the other way too from the arbitrator's perspective. Um, working with an administrative organization like the AAA allows you as an arbitrator to focus solely on the substance of the case and not other administrative aspects like invoicing, scheduling, and all that. And also, you know, it, it relates to my topic, keeps you above the fray, you know, if and when there is a request for removal. Um, so you're not put in that awkward position you know, of having someone you know, come to you and say, you know, for whatever reason, I think you should be removed from the case, and then you yourself having to make the decision, you know, about whether you can remain on the case or not, and worry about, you know, what, what that's going to do for the ultimate, for the award. You know, co coincidentally, uh, Tracy, I was on the phone earlier today with one of the other panelists on my panel, uh, and she was talking, she's in-house counsel for a large corporation, she was talking about a bad experience she had with a self-administered arbitration mm -hmm. where the arbitrator was hire, uh, charging excessive fees, was mm. delaying, and she felt very um, uh, unable to really do yeah. anything about it. And she, she vowed after that experience uh, never to do that again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think you lose some control over the process when you don't have that third-party administrator in there um, you know, to, to help maintain um, sort of the, the neutrality with some of these sticky issues. So I know in our situation, when, when this lawsuit was filed, we immediately reached out uh, to the legal department and uh, the AAA legal department, and, and you were the one who we worked with. And so talk a little bit then about the, the common ways then for the legal department to get involved in, in these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know sometimes we'll just receive 
service through one of our registered agent of service and see that we've been sued or subpoenaed or an arbitrator has been sued or subpoenaed. Uh, one of our offices or a case manager might receive something via just simply email um, from a party, giving them a heads up that something's going on. Um, or we'll someone will reach out to us. So uh, an arbitrator could let us know that they've received service or, or a call or an email indicating that something's going on. Um, so the legal department will, will always be involved when an arbitrator or the AAA is being sued or subpoenaed. Um, we're also consulted, you know, not always so much for legal advice, but just sort of general counsel when a case manager finds themselves in a difficult uh, situation. So specific to this presentation, a member of the legal department does serve as a liaison to the AAA's Administrative Review uh, Council, or ARC. And ARC is the administrative body within the AAA that handles arbitrator removal requests for large and complex cases. So legal department's always involved there. Um, but there are other situations where something's going on in a case uh, and a case manager is sort of struggling and looking just for some advice on how to handle. And one of those situations oftentimes can be those tricky requests uh, for removal. Now, how, how about when an, an arbitrator is initially appointed and then uh, parties have an opportunity to uh, express any objection to that appointment. If an objection is made, does this ARC handle those, or how, how does the AAA yeah. resolve those objections? Yeah, so if it's a large or complex case, um, then the Administrative Review Council ARC will handle those, no matter when in the case the objection comes up. Um, you know, it's something like, let's say, California. Sometimes it's an automatic removal. Um, there is no sort of decision-making involved, um, but generally, the Administrative Review Council on large and complex cases would be involved. Um, and then it depends. You know, I think when that request for removal comes up at any point in the case, you know, a case manager is going to look at it. They're going to look at it with their um, assistant vice president or vice president. You know, you're going to get managerial involvement. Um, and then it's really up to them to decide whether or not they want to involve the legal department, you know, whether they feel like it's sort of clear, something they can handle, or whether it's something perhaps more complex and, and something they want to get sort of a second opinion on, whether they bring us in or not. Can, can an arbitrator uh, question a, a decision to uh, remove the arbitrator? I, and I, I, I want to be clear, not, not during the, the arbitration, but it, or to, to excuse the arbitrator from initially serving. If, if, if an objection is made, case manager upholds the objection, does the arbitrator have a, a right uh, to uh, challenge that? Generally not. We would say the AAA's decision is final. Um, you know, we, we do go back to arbitrators during the process. We want to make sure we have the who, what, where, when, why. You know, we have all the information in terms of whatever the disclosure is. We want to be sure we have as much information as possible, especially if parties are raising things to us that an arbitrator has not had an opportunity to comment on. Um, then we would get, before the decision is made, we would get feedback from the arbitrator and additional information. But once the decision is made, it's, it's final. Okay. All right. Well, you, you've been with the AAA now 10 years, and, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm assuming in the course of that time, you've seen different uh, themes occur about, about the kind of problems that we're talking about. So what what are some of those common situations that, uh, that you've seen arise? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think one thing that makes working in the AAA's legal department um, so engaging for me is you never quite face the same situation twice. You know, I think you see, see it the same when you're serving as an arbitrator, right? Every case has its own nuances 
um, that makes it somewhat different from the other. So, so there's really a lot of um, a, a lot of differences from what comes up. Um, yeah. You know, that being said, when it comes to litigation, you know, it can be as simple as a party not wanting to be in arbitration and naming the AAA or an arbitrator in a litigation just to try and get the arbitration stayed. You know, we see that oftentimes. They think they need to name us in order to get the relief they're seeking, and we try and convince them that, in fact, they do not. Um, you know, we always try at first to get voluntarily dismissed from a case um, so we don't have to sort of get embroiled in the litigation between the parties. Um, you know, sometimes you'll see parties uh, naming the AAA because they want to get some administrative determination that we've made reviewed by the court, or you'll see them naming an arbitrator because they want to get an arbitrator's decision, um, not necessarily the final award, but something along the way reviewed by a court. Um, but, but again, these situations always have their own nuances, which makes it, um, which makes it interesting. You know, one of the things I know you're going to talk about is arbitral immunity. And I think mm -hmm. all of us who serve as an arbitrator make the assumption, uh, I think it's largely true, that arbitrators have uh, the equivalent of judicial immunity or, or quasi-judicial immunity. And that, that although we can certainly can be sued, that we're not liable for adjudicative type decisions that we make in the course of an arbitration. But um, I, I think you have pointed out to me that there are some subtleties to that that maybe arbitrators might not be aware of. Yep, yeah. And, and you're right. For the most part, arbitral immunity for you know, a decision that an arbitrator makes, um, even non-disclosure issues and all that, is going to protect um, an arbitrator. Um, from any kind of li liability, but there there are some nuances, like you said, and you know, one of them is false advertising in the context of an inaccurate or incomplete resume, and we've seen a case about that recently. Um, a case about failing to issue an award, you know, at all, um, and if you're functioning in a role similar to an arbitrator, but that is somehow fundamentally different than an arbitrator, uh, arbitrator, and I'll be delving into all that during my presentation. Let me go back to the first point you made about the resume. So I, I want to make sure that, that I'm following it. So um, we all have a resume. That resume is, is sent out to the, to the parties. They, they choose arbitrators from the resume. And, and, and although you didn't mention it, I, I guess we should talk about the disclosure, whether, whether an error in the disclosure uh, that is made is something that is not covered by arbitral immunity. What, what about that? Yeah. Um, everything I've seen, you know, you see the Revised Uniform um, Arbitration Act especially is the most clear about it, but uh, even non-disclosures are covered by immunity. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as concerned about that. I mean, you could see, you know, maybe in an extreme case where, you know, maybe a judge would be uncomfortable um, covering that, but I think it would have to be ex very extreme. Uh, but in terms of what I'm talking about with false advertising, it's more that you're putting something on your resume um, that is leading a person to select you, and you know it's it's untrue. Um, you say you have some certain uh, experience that you know you you absolutely do not have, or, or something like that. Um, and I'll and I'll delve more into the case uh, that involves that you know, dur during my presentation. But it is one area I think arbitrators need to make sure that. Their, you know, resumes are up to date, are accurate. Um, that what's on their resumes, you know, is is true, and, and they can they can back it up. 
You know, uh, one of the, the topics that arbitrators are always concerned about uh, is uh, vacature and having an award vacated. And, and, and certainly yeah. we, we want to avoid that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and interestingly, the, some of the studies that our, our colleagues have done, Larry Mills and Tom Brewer, are looking at uh, decisions found that actually uh, when an arbitrator acts outside of his or her jurisdiction, Okay. is actually the most common ground for vacature. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. Having okay. said that, I think we're all concerned about proper disclosure and, and, um, and there are cases indeed where the failure to make disclosure is, is a ground for, for vacature. So, so let's talk a little bit about the disclosure and, and, and let me hear your perspective about the importance of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you know you're you're exactly right. In order for uh, to protect the award, I think disclosure is, is obviously is crucial. Um, I think you know it's to protect the integrity of the arbitration process, to protect your own reputation. You know, the last thing I think an arbitrator wants to see is their name highlighted, you know, on a Westlaw search or being discussed in a legal blog connected to an award being vacated. You know, and and particularly based on non-disclosure, you know, parties obviously do their research, and you know, I wouldn't want to select someone if I do my research and find that they've had an award vacated based on non-disclosure. Um, and I do agree that in terms of uh, what's the most common for a court to review and vacate an award would be absence of jurisdiction, you know, clear absence, you've decided something outside of your jurisdiction um, to do so. And I think non-disclosure is a, is a higher burden, but as we saw, you know, recently, I know you, you and I discussed previously, you know, the, the Monster Energy case, you know, you do see courts that come out um, that find that non-disclosure, you know, is going to vacate an award. And I have to say, I was surprised by the Monster Energy decision, um, but, you know, it's out there now. So, you know, I do think that arbitrators need, do need to be careful that they are being sure that they run a good conflict check and that they're um, specific and clear in making their disclosures. You know, one of the things that, that I think is occurring, and, and maybe you, you would have a far better insight into this than, than I would, is that, that parties uh, even after, well, after an award is entered, and if they're on the losing side, mm -hmm. start doing research about mm -hmm. the arbitrator that maybe they should have done mm -hmm. at the beginning. And, oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I had a situation like that where after I had entered an award, about six months after the award was entered, the losing party uh, took the position that I had uh, failed to make a disclosure. And, and actually, the case ultimately went to court and was... Uh, my disclosure was upheld by the mm -hmm. court in California. But having said that, I, I guess to me, it's, it, it's, it illustrates that, that it's a minefield out there for arbitrators. Mm -hmm. And what, 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 what do yeah. you, am I overreacting? No, no, I don't think you are. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, like a lot of arbitration law, there are sort of splits, right, among the circuits. And you have also state courts interpreting the Federal Arbitration Act and the grounds for vacature. So there's, there's a lot of different standards being applied. And, one thing I will go over in my presentation are the trends that we see, um, you know, through different circuits and sort of where they're at in terms of how they view non-disclosure um, and vacature of award. But, but you know, I agree that it's, it's, it's something to keep top of mind and be concerned about. You know, I obviously, from my perspective as uh, you know, a member of the AAA's legal department, I agree with the courts that find that, um, you know, it has to be uh, something that, would have been known to the arbitrator at the time, you know, it was clearly undisclosed, the person didn't have notice of it, you know, and all that. So I think that this 
private investigation after the fact, you know, should not be rewarded. Um, but you know, I have seen cases that have, you know, vacated awards based on parties doing some digging after the fact and finding disclosures that should have been made by the arbitrator. You know, one topic that, that uh, I, I think we all who are arbitrators uh, think about is when an objection is made uh, mm -hmm. to our service, um, how does a case manager or the legal department evaluate those objections? In other words, are there, are there guidelines that, that, that you or your colleagues use in considering those objection, object, objections? Because it's sort of a black box, you know, to the arbitrator, yeah. because we really don't know uh, yeah. what, what, what is the basis of, of any decision either to sustain the objection or to reject the ob objection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all done case by case, um, but we do generally utilize a four-part test in determining whether a disclosure rises to the level of removing an arbitrator from a case. And we look at, you know, is it direct? You know, is the conflict direct? Is it continuing? Is it substantial? Is it recent? And those are the factors that go into it. And um, we weigh these factors together uh, as a guide, you know, to whether this conflict's going to be disqualifying. And Ultimately, our determination is based upon whether the disclosure creates to a reasonable person, you know, the appearance that an award would not be fairly rendered. So we try and look at it from the perspective of the parties um, and see, you know, whether it, it really does create that appearance that an award wouldn't be fairly rendered. Um, and we also see requests for remo removal based on arbitrators' alleged inability or refusal to perform duties with diligence and in good faith. Um, and the AAA's administrative determination there is based upon whether the circumstances create, again, to a reasonable person, the appearance that the arbitrator is unable or has refused to perform his or her duties with diligence uh, and in good faith. And I'm going to be going into some examples during my presentation to hopefully make this all come to life. And I'm also hoping um, that it will spur some good audience discussion as well. You know, I'd love to hear from the folks in the audience or about their own experiences and, and sort of their views about um, you know, the, the scenarios that I'll present. No, for those of us who are, are in active practice and have been in the practice as a neutral for, for some time, there are certainly uh, uh, occasions, well, intermittent times when we have served as a neutral for a particular party or a particular law firm, I'd say more I'm thinking of a law firm, mm -hmm. when a new case comes in. So we might have worked as a neutral for a law firm, uh, say a half a dozen times over the last uh -huh. 10 years or 15 years. And, and, and so I, I'm assuming that those kinds of connections ordinarily don't warrant uh, disqualification from uh, the, the AAA. Yeah, you know, it, it sort of, it, again, it depends on um, the circumstances, you know, so if you, um, you know, I think what you're referring to is you acted as an arbitrator on another case where the firm may have been the same. You know, so that doesn't worry me as much as, you know, let's say you worked as an expert witness, you know, mm -hmm. for a firm, you know, that's representing a party to a case. You know, so again, I think that gets to the sort of substantial, you know, how substantial was the connection. Um, you know, and also we take a look at the party's objections. You know, is the party um, objecting because, you know, for some reason, you know, that they think that this other case, you know, you decided in such a way that would bias you in this new case, you know? So again, it's, it's all very fact specific. Um, so 
So I don't know if I can say that, you know, that would never be ground for removal. Um, but again, you know, it would sort of get to how substantial, you know, is, is the connection. Yeah, it's funny you should mention about expert witnesses. I was asked to serve as an arbitrator in a matter in which I had been a neutral arbitrator and a mediator with this firm, say a half a dozen times, but 20 years ago, mm -hmm. I was an expert witness on behalf mm -hmm. of the firm on the subject of attorney's fees. And, and uh, I was disqualified. Yeah, um, interesting. Maybe, maybe, maybe you did that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 awesome. that I, 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 of course, I don't know why I was disqualified, but I'm right, assuming right. that was the reason. And right. I guess my question would be, is there not a statute of limitations on, right. on issues? Right, well, that, that's, you know, that's interesting too. And, and I think it, it also depends on when in the process we are. So if you were just selected, right, we're at the beginning of the process and there's some objection where parties, you know, vehemently against you serving and, you know, for whatever reason, you know, sometimes, you know, really for the integrity of the process and for, you know, the smooth administration of a process, it might be best to let's just go to someone else, you know, um, at the beginning of the process. Now, you know, if we're, you know, close to award and you've made some, decisions against a party and then we start seeing objections, you know, you take that for what it's worth too. Um, so I think that also plays a role in our mind in terms of when is the objection, you know, being raised and, and how is it being raised. But, um, you know, I do think early on in the process, um, you know, sometimes it is worthwhile uh, to, to allow the removal in order to get someone in who no one has any objections to. No, I told this story to one of my colleagues here in Arizona, and this person said, well, wh why did you even disclose something <laughs> from 20 years ago? Right. Uh, and, and so that raises a question. Do you have any guidance on how far back we should be looking at issues mm -hmm. that we might disclose? Yeah. I mean, I'm always, my advice is always going to be disclose, disclose, disclose. You know, I just don't think it's worth it um, because I think the worst that can happen is you don't disclose and someone finds it out and, and then, you know, they're using it to vacate the award. Um, in all likelihood, if you disclose something from 30 years ago, unless it's that, you know, you work for this company or whatever, um, who's a party to the case, you know, it, it likely wouldn't be a grounds, you know, to vacate. So I always think it's a good idea to disclose. And I think you want to look back, you know, as far as your records will take you. Um, you know, I, but again, I, I take the much more conservative approach because I'd rather it be disclosed um, and, uh, you know, you either be removed or confirmed. If you're confirmed, hey, you know, you've already um, disclosed it so they don't have that argument, you know, the, the non-disclosure to vacate the award. Um, I, I always advise disclose. You know, had that not been in my uh, database, I would have never remembered it. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, shame on me for, for keeping accurate records. <laughs> See, I think kudos to you for keeping accurate records. <laughs> well, this has been a, a great discussion, Tracy, and I know this is going to be of great uh, interest and important interest to yeah. traders and, and, and lawyers as well. So uh, I am so pleased that you are willing to come out to Arizona on March 9th and 10th to, to do this and to talk about these issues. Did we forget anything? Uh, I don't want to say everything that you're going to talk about because we do want people to attend the, attend the program, but anything you want <laughs> before we hang up? I think, I think you hit it all. No, I'm, I'm really, I'm looking forward to coming out. Um, 
and I think it's going to be fun. I think we're going to have a good discussion coming out of this.